0: All right, I encourage you to grab a Bible and go to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua's kind of in your first half of the Old Testament. So if you get to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, kind of keep going right and you'll land in uh, to Joshua. So as you're going there, I just want to make you a, aware of a few things in the back of your bulletin. So I really, really love our little bulletins here. Uh, the first one is this This Wednesday, we're going to do some Christmas caroling. All right, so yeah, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. So whether you can sing or not sing, show up. Amen. Uh, so we're going to meet here at the church and divide up, and we're going to kind of bless this neighborhood, hopefully bless the neighborhood, uh, with our singing of some Christmas carols. So it'll be a good time. So come this Wednesday. I'm not sure what time it is. Uh, here it is, 630. There it is on your little back of your bulletin. As well as you got a little insert in your bulletin. we got next Sunday, Kids Choir and Cocoa. It's just a great, great time for us to have our children in the first half of our service. Uh, they'll be singing some songs with us. They've been practicing those during the kids' assembly. And so if you've got a kid in that age range, and I think it's on this little handout, I want to say K-5th, through fifth, But I could be wrong there, so don't take, do this. Don't listen to me. Do this right here. All right, Uh, if you can go register, that would be really helpful for us in planning because we do kind of something in between services, kind of, you know, occupy their time and and give them some blessings. So if you can register your kids, uh, that would be a huge uh, blessing. And one last thing, just for Christmas Eve. So that's December uh, 24th obviously that's kind of dumb right to say that like you knew that it's Sunday is what I meant to say Sunday this year and so we'll do our normal two services 9 and 11 and then we'll come back together as a whole family and do kind of a, a family candlelight service at 6 p.m. and so we'll have limited child care in the 9 and 11 I think it's up to age four and then we'll have no child care during the six o'clock service uh, it'll be a family worship we'll have a lot of fun it'll be loud And that's all good because we we love kids here. Amen. So we'll have a good time. And I promise I'll keep things short and won't make your kids be bored with me talking too much. All right. So, all right. Yeah, I know it's a weird passage to open up during Christmas, but I'll make some connections here in just a second. All right. So stand with me in honor of reading God's word. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through 16 here. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from, all right, should it do? All right, there we go. It's like, you got to say that really fast, because that could be like, beep, in the church or whatever. It's like, thank you, God, for putting that in the Bible. Amen. So, <laughs> so all right, go go look over the land. I do feel like he laughs so much at the way I butcher names. So, so I just love him. He's got a great sense of humor. Thank the Lord. All right, go look over the land, Joshua said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, so look. Uh, some of the Israelites have come in here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She, she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from at dusk. When it was time to close the gate, the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax, which she had laid out on the roof. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. And before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when, when you were coming out of Egypt and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives are for your lives, the men assured her. And if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land so she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. And now she had said to them, go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful for how it speaks to uh, just... Um, the chaos and um, the messiness of our own lives, Lord. And I just do, I I just ask that even in the midst of this time of a season that's really busy with a lot of things going on in our worlds, that even for these few moments that we can just kind of sit still and remind ourselves that our greatest need is you and our greatest need is to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So some of you may be wondering, what in the world are we doing reading a a passage of Scripture like Joshua chapter 2, in case this is the first time you rolled in, especially during Christmas time. It just seems like a really weird passage uh, to read during Christmas. Well, what we're doing is we're doing a series that we've called uh, The Mothers of Jesus, which in and of itself, that name's kind of strange and needs a little bit of an explanation. And so in the genealogy of Matthew, before he jumps in and talks about the birth narrative, It kind of gives us where Jesus came from. And in that genealogy, the shocking thing that he does is he names five women. He names Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but in that time, you just didn't do that. You don't name women in your genealogy unless you want to kind of like enhance the purity of your line or kind of make it more dignified and more honorable. And if you know anything about these women, their stories are not going to make your genealogy look better. It's actually going to make it look worse. So there's something going on here that Matthew is wanting to kind of weave the, the message of the good news even in the midst of his genealogy. And so last week, if you were with us, we looked at one of the most scandalous stories in all of Bible, and there's a lot. This is just one of them. Uh, in Genesis chapter 38, where the story of Tamar. And if you've not read that story i encourage you to go home and read that story. And what we saw in that story, if we can kind of sum it up, it's summed up in one verse in Psalm 103, one of those psalms that we all love, one of my favorite psalms, where it talks about what God does for us. So God is the one who redeems our life from the pit, and that's what he did from Tamar, a hopeless situation, a scandalous story. He redeems her life from the pit. And and even that, if we don't have the second half of verse 4, that's beautiful, right? It's wonderful. That's good news, and we're going to celebrate that. But God always does more than we can imagine or think when he says this. Not only does he redeem our lives from the pit, but he crowns us with love and compassion. He brings dignity and honor. So Tamar becomes the first woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. And that's shocking when you look at the story that took place in Genesis 38. So the second woman is a prostitute. Her name's Rahab. And so this is what I want to do this morning real quick. I just want to kind of go back in the story, kind of work through it a little bit, kind of show us a little bit of the shock of why Rahab's included here, you know, just kind of for us to feel like, wow, why in the world would Matthew do that? And then my prayers at the end, I want to kind of give us uh, two kind of thoughts for us to reflect on and think on as a result of this story. And so, yeah, I get it. We kind of jump in the middle here. So, like, what is, what's going on here? So kind of a quick catch-me-up of what's going on in this context is, the nation of Israel has been rescued by God out of the land of Egypt, all right? So they're rescued from slavery. They've spent 40 years kind of wandering in the desert because of the rebellion that they did against God. A whole generation has died off and a new generation has been raised up. And so Moses has died and now Joshua is the leader. And what is happening here is the nation of Israel is getting ready to occupy the land that God has promised them all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made this promise to Abraham that they're gonna occupy and own this land, this land of Canaan. So they're getting ready to step in and do that. This is kind of a fulfillment that they've been longing for and praying for. And so what we see here in verse one is that that, um, Joshua kind of designates a couple of spies and it says to go look over the land, he said, especially in Jericho. And the reason why he says especially in Jericho is because that's the first city they're going to encounter when they roll into this promised land here. And so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. And so we see also in verse two, that these spies weren't really good spies, were they? <laughs> were they? Like, they must have missed a course on what it means to be a spy. To be a spy means you don't get detected. And so we see in verse two, they roll in here, and the king of Jericho finds out hey, hey, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So they didn't do a really good job. They flunked spyology, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for laughing a little bit. Not too much there, but that's okay. So, But the the beautiful thing in in this is that somehow, by God's providence, we kind of know that. They don't know this. They landed in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. We don't know how they got there. We don't know why they got there. They don't know why this house, but they landed in the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab. And so Rahab did not give them in. She actually hid them on top of her roof, even though the king sent a couple guys, hey, bring them out. No, no, she hid them. And so even... In these first couple of verses, we learn a little bit about Rahab. And one of the, the big things that kind of jump off the page here as you read about Rahab's story is that Rahab is an outsider. An outsider three times over. And so we see that she's an outsider by her gender. So she's a woman. And so yeah, we've, we've made a lot of strides when it comes to women in our culture, but man, we've got a long way to go, especially within the church. Some of you women here probably feel dismissed, disregarded, downplayed, sometimes even felt like the the weaker vessel and don't feel like an equal image bearer of God. So you can imagine that feeling and multiplying that by thousands. And that's what you roll in as far as women in this society. They were were viewed more as a piece of property that men could use and do whatever they wanted to with. They have a lot of rights they weren't even allowed to go into court and testify because their testimony couldn't be trusted. So she's an outsider because of her gender. She's a woman. Not only that, she's an outsider like because of her race. She's a Canaanite. And so, yes, she is the first instance in the Bible where we have someone who's a Gentile that converts, but you got to remember she's still seen as unclean. She's still seen as an outsider that even... When they build the temple, eventually people from her race could not enter into the temple. They couldn't even go to church, quote unquote. That there was a special court where the Gentiles, the unclean people, could hang out and be a part of it. And so she was not only an outsider by her gender, by being a woman. She's an outsider by her race. She's a Canaanite. And she's also an outsider because of her morals. She's a a prostitute. So there's two reasons why... People were prostitutes in that time. You know, they were a cultic prostitute where they were part of the worship, the temple worship to where the men would come and have sex with prostitutes there in order to kind of get the favor of the gods in that time. So that's one way there was prostitutes. And another way was basically you're a prostitute for survival. And that's what we have with Rahab. Like the only way that she could pay the bills, quote unquote, is for men to pay her to sleep with them. So look, like, I don't know a whole lot about prostitute as a profession, but I think most of us in this room can say this. It's not a real proud occupation, isn't it? It's not something you go home and, and brag about or you're really proud about that, hey, wow, you know, I'm a prostitute. This is what I do for a living. There's a whole lot of shame, deep shame. And in that shame, I think, carries a story, a story that probably Rahab heard over and over. You're an outsider. You're not wanted. You're damaged good. Nobody loves you. That's how Rahab feels. I mean, even, I know we've got a little humming going on here, so if that really weirds you out, sometimes you got to acknowledge what you're hearing so that everybody kind of like, I wonder if he knows that. Yeah, I, I hear the little humming. We've got a, a rocking, awesome organ, which I'm so stinking excited about, so I don't know if that's the humming coming through or not, but if you, it might just be special effects for my sermon, amen? So hopefully it moves you really well. So here's, kind of catch up where I'm at, so... And we love Elliot. There's a little humming coming through. Not now, not anymore. I know, that's okay. If I hear it, I'll yell for you, all right? You're good. Thank you, Elliot. Love you, man. So, all right. Kind of bring it in, right? So, So not only do we see her feeling this outsider because of her gender, her race, as well as the morality that's in her life, even the physical placement of her home, right? Her home is built into the wall of Jericho. The boundary that marks the outside and the inside, hers is right there. So, I mean, even in her own city, I mean, just her physical placement of her home reminds her of how much she's an outsider. Look, I, I mentioned that or just say that, and, and, and part of that is just so that we can kind of resonate a little bit with her story. Yeah, definitely not all of us in this room can exactly resonate with what she's feeling, but most of us here know what it feels like to not fit in. To be at a place where you don't feel like you belong. To be sort of an outsider. Some of you feel that way with your family, which is really hard, right? Because the one place that you want to belong and feel a part of is the one place that you feel most like an outsider, almost like a, a foreigner. And it kind of like heightens itself during the holiday seasons when you're gathering with family. You're just reminded, man, I don't fit here. Some of you feel like that with your work, with your school. If you're a junior high or a high school in this room and you're trying to follow Jesus, that's a really, really tough place. You feel like you're all alone, that there's nobody else who cares. Unfortunately, some of you, and I hate to even say this, and it hurts me to say this, some of you feel like that even in the midst of our church. You feel like an outsider, you feel like you don't fit. Maybe you're single here and We're predominantly married people here, and you feel like I don't fit here. If you're young, married, you don't have kids, you probably feel like you don't belong here because we have like a million kids here, right? It's like everywhere you walk, you bump into a kid, and we we love them, but it can make you feel left out. Some of you are here or divorced, and you feel like you've got a big D on your chest, and everybody knows it, and you feel like you just don't fit. I've been here for seven years, uh, seven years last Sunday, and it's been a joy. It really has. it has been a lot of ups and downs, but it's been a joy, and you guys are a, a blessing to lead and pastor. And I may have shared this story with you before, and, and if I had, just just humor me, right? Uh, some of you, this will probably be new for you. But when I first started here, guys, I man, I tell you, I, I was the first guy from the outside to be hired on at Sojourn Community Church. And so, like I felt like an outsider. Like it's, I came on. I, I left the staff where I was one of the youngest, and I stepped into a staff of forty plus, and I'm one of the oldest. Oldest. So it's me and Robert Chong that are in their forties. That's it. That's it. So it, like I just, just felt like I didn't fit. I wasn't much of a, a hipster. I couldn't grow a beard for crying out loud. I didn't wear cool glasses. I didn't have very many flannels. I didn't have a lot of those at that time, and uh, the kind of music that I liked was more pop, not edgy, hardcore music. I kind of like Nickelback a little bit, which was kind of a sin here, and I didn't let anybody know that because I was scared I'd get fired, you know. I kind of pretended that I liked their music when I actually kind of hated it. Um, so. And I remember, like it was yesterday, um, man, coming home my first day, it was a Monday right after Thanksgiving. And we were eating spaghetti that night, one of the meals that we often have at our home because we can't afford anything else, right? <laughs> Spaghetti's a really uh, easy meal to cook and feeds the kids when you got four boys. But I remember sitting there, man, and weeping, weeping. I said, Kathy, I think I made a mistake. I don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I'm a part. Look, I share that just not to kind of connect with Rahab because Rahab feels it probably immensely more than whatever I felt. But all of us in this room, get this, right? There's been places and moments and seasons where you feel like an outsider. And just like Rahab, she wants something different, doesn't she? She she wants a way out. She wants to know, is there, is there a place where I can, I can be fully known and be loved? Is there a place where I can belong? Is there a place where even because of my occupation, I'm not going to be rejected, but actually received and accepted? And everything changes for Rahab. It does. And you're, you're, you're kind of like, okay, well, then how? Like, what what happens here for Rahab? And, and one of the questions you even ask as you're kind of reading through the story is why in the world would Rahab help these two guys? Why? It just doesn't, humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense. It would make sense, humanly speaking, for Rahab to help the king because the king is the one that's, you know, oversight, has the power and land. And, you know, if she helps the king, then maybe her situation would change and she wouldn't have to be a prostitute to make ends meet for Crown So why in the world would Rahab choose to, possibly become a traitor and help these two guys that she's never met? Well, she explains why. Look at verse 8. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof. And I love this because it's like, no, no, you ain't going to sleep, right? I got some stuff to talk to you about, right? Like this, there's some stuff stirring on in me. You ain't going to sleep yet. And so look what she says here in verse 9. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you, which is a fulfillment that God made to Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus 23, that I will send my terror ahead of you. Like I'm taking care of all of this. I'm gonna make sure you occupy this land. And part of that is I'm sending the fear of God ahead of you. And we see that happening here in verse nine. She goes on in verse 10 and she explains this. We have heard, not seen, this is what they've heard, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings, these two powerful kings in this time of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is a God in heaven above and on earth below. And so look, this is why she's chosen to help these two strangers that she has never met because she's heard. She's heard stories of a God who rescues marginalized people. She's heard stories of a powerful God who goes after people that are outsiders, so to speak, that are in slavery, who have no hope unless a God comes and rescues them. And that's exactly what she has heard here. And I love this because she doesn't attribute or assign these victories to the people of Israel. She doesn't say, "Hey, you know the reason why you guys have defeated those kings and you got to you escaped from Egypt is because you Israelites are a superior race and you get these military tactics that no one else does." Right? That's not what she says. She says, "No, the reason why you're able to do what you've done is because the Lord, your God is the God of heaven and on earth, which is a miracle for her to confess. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. She didn't have mom and dad sitting down saying, hey, here's the, here's the one true God. You know, you've been hearing about this God in Egypt. Let me tell you more about it. No, that's not what she grew up in. The spiritual climate of her society was, is there is a pantheon of gods. There are are many gods who who are gods over certain territories. So for her to confess that there is nowhere where God is not God, including Jericho, is a miracle. She goes on in verse 12, where she kind of basically pleads for mercy. I love this. Look what she says. Now then, please swear to me, by the Lord, that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all that belong to him and that you will save us from death. So get this, guys. Everyone in Jericho heard the same thing. Are you following me? It wasn't just Rahab. And not just Rahab that got some kind of special message. Everyone heard the same thing. You can do one of two response, fear or faith. And what does Rahab do? The little that she knows about God, she knows I'm going to side with him and I'm going to risk it all and put my entire life and my family's life at the mercy of God. What I know about God, I'm going to side with him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put my faith in him. As one commentator says and reminds us that genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God. Are you following that? Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the existence of God. But here's what genuine faith is. It presses on to take refuge, to put your life in his hands, to trust him. That's exactly what Rahab did here. With the little knowledge that she heard about God, she's going, I'm going to side with him. And so what happened? Does God save her? Will the spies give her some specific instructions on what she needs to do to mark her house in order for her to be saved. And then we go all the way to chapter six and we read this in verse 24. Then they, Joshua and the Israelites, burned the whole city, talking about Jericho and everything in it, verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her. Because why? She hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So here's, here's what's fascinating about this. There's all kinds of little things that are fascinating about this story. But here's one that, that's awesome. I love this. So, so Joshua sends two spies into the land of Jericho, kind of scope it out. And I've, I've not been a spy before, but my, I'm assuming you're going in to kind of find out their weaknesses so you can develop some kind of military strategy to conquer them, Right? That's kind of the goal of a spy. Notice, (laughs) that's not what happened here, was it? There is no knowledge that these spies brought back that changed any kind of military strategy. Why? Because if you read the whole story, chapter two to chapter six, you find out that this was a miracle in how they conquered the city. They conquered the city by walking around it seven times. And after that, the the trumpet sounded and the people of God shouted. And when that happened, the city walls went down and they conquered everybody. And that was not insider knowledge that the spies brought in, right? It's not like the spies showed up and said, hey, Joshua, we got an inside knowledge here. They have really sensitive ears, right? <laughs> and here's our plan, right? That's not what happened here. And so what we see is God sent those spies into Jericho in order to rescue Rahab, not to give some kind of advantage to the the Israelite army. I love what one writer says about this. Rahab's faith in protecting the spies was not the method that God used to benefit the Israelites, but rather it was what he used to benefit Rahab. When Rahab was helping the spies, she was also helping herself. Why? Because that's what God does. He seeks and saves that which is lost. He seeks and saves those who feel marginalized. He seeks and saves those who feel like they're damaged goods. He seeks and saves those who feel like they're outsiders. So, what do we, what do we, what do we learn here, right? How do we weave this story, right? This has been my challenge. I feel like I've got like three ropes I'm trying to weave together every Sunday with you guys. So. I'm, I'm trying to take this story, help us see what's going on here, weave it into why Matthew put it in her genealogy, and then at the same time talk a little bit about Christmas. That's what I'm trying to do, you know, with this, and that's the challenge of the Christmas season. It's one thing to just kind of like unpack the story and let it go, but I can't ignore the season that we're in. That would be kind of really dumb on my part. So so what do we learn here, right? What do we learn from this story that kind of gives us insight into Matthew and why she? why he put her in a genealogy, as well as what does it help us see about the Christmas time. i got two things here, just two kind of things I want us to reflect upon over the coming week, hopefully that relates directly to the Rahab story. The first one is this, and, and, and here's the thing. Sometimes I feel like, you know, when I say something like this, it's going kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard this. Okay, yeah, I got it, but I don't think we really get it, and I, it's always good for us to be reminded. I need to be reminded of stuff because I forget a lot, as well as I, I think I know it, but I really don't know it so here's the first one all right sorry about all the qualifying there that's a little too much but here's the first one no one is excluded the clearest message that we see in Rahab's story and then explicitly being mentioned in Matthew's genealogy is this no one no one is excluded It doesn't matter if you feel like an outsider culturally, society, in your family. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It does not matter what you have done. If you repent and put your faith in Jesus, just like Rahab did, he will forgive you of your sins. You'll be united with Christ and you will be a part of his family. No one is excluded. It does not matter what you have done or what you will do. When Jesus says it is finished, it means it is finished. All your sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. No one, no one is excluded. There was a, in the Old Testament time, there was this kind of concept called ceremonial uncleanness. All right, now it sounds really weird and strange, but we see hints of this even in certain religions. But in the Old Testament time, and basically what this is is that if you wanted to remain holy, acceptable, clean, good, then there were certain things that you stayed away from that were kind of unclean and unholy. They were kind of even, even looked at as contagious. And so if you got around them or t- touched them, then their unholy unholiness would come on you. Their uncleanness would come on you and make you damaged, unclean, that kind of stuff. And that's why there's all kinds of Laws in Leviticus that define what is clean and unclean. And then if you get contaminated, so to speak, then this is what you got to do to make yourself clean again. Now, the beautiful thing of this is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he turns all that around. When he shows up on the scene, listen to what happens here. Now, Jesus, his holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us who are unclean and sinful and unholy. So I'll say it again. Jesus' holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us who are unclean. But rather, this is what's beautiful, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. His cleanness, his wholeness, his holiness affects, infects us by our contact with him. And all that simply means is this, is no matter where you are, What you have done, regardless of any of that, you can be made clean and whole and holy by your contact with Jesus. And better yet, you can feel holy, clean, and pure by your contact, your receiving of Jesus. Isn't that what Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 1, verse 18? When he says this, come now, let us reason together. This is a rebellious people here he's talking to. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? As white as snow. Though they are red, like as crimson, what what are they going to be? They're going to be like wool. Look, no one is excluded. There is nothing that you can do that will exclude you from the family of Jesus. Repent and believe. That's it. Now, good. Look, I, that's not just a message for those who are not Christians. I think it's a message for us as Christians also because we, or, okay, I, I'm not projecting on you, right? I, and I would say we have a tendency to exclude. We have a tendency to edit out. We have a tendency to say, wow, they're too far gone. So, so Jesus said, no, 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 no one's too far gone. Jesus doesn't edit anyone out. There's always hope. But we have a tendency to exclude, to edit, to say, wow, there's no way. Christmas time is supposed to be marked by by peace and joy, right? But usually it's marked by chaos and conflict. And most of the time, what's at the center of that is family, isn't it? I get it, most of you in this room or some of you in this room have amazing families. You're looking forward to the holidays. You can't wait to get with them. It's a big celebration. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting or whatever, everything's just beautiful and awesome. I get that. And and thank God for you. Some of us are a little jealous and envious of you right now. Um, and God's been really good and gracious to you. Not that he's not been good and gracious to all of us, but there's been a special favor on you for some reason. Okay, moving on, all right. But for a lot of us in this room, a lot of us in this room, that's not the case for us, is it? That's not the case for us. And actually thinking about family Brings a lot of anxiety for you, a lot of stress for you. It's actually the one place where you, there's a lot of conflict and chaos that goes on in your home. And some of us in this room, we kind of plan our um, Christmas with our extended family, kind of like a, a Navy SEALs plan an operation into enemy territory, right? It's like we're leaving. We're leaving here at 0800, honey. We're going to roll in there. And here's the plan. We're getting presents, doing that really quick, eating lunch, and then we're making our escape, right? So, and we have signals. Right? We have signals of like, help me, right? Or <laughs> signals like, let's go, right? Maybe you don't, but I do sometimes. Uh, and the reason why we do this is, right? Like, like, we do, we we just want to avoid the drama. We want to avoid the chaos. We want to avoid the mess. It it brings back too much pain and difficulty in our life. And if there's one thing that we learn through just examining a little bit of Matthew's genealogy here is this, is that God goes out of his way to include and not just to include, but to, listen, listen, but to pick some of the most scandalous people to be a part of his family. Tamar and Rahab, the prostitute. So look, I'm I'm not trying to minimize in any way the pain that your family may have caused you. And I'm not trying to like say, hey, if you just sit down with them and have a peppermint mocha, that all the dysfunction in your family will be gone, right? I'm not, like I get it, man. It's way way deeper and way bigger than that. But here's what I am saying. I'm just asking us to not write them off. I'm just asking us not to say they're too far gone. I'm asking us not to exclude them. But maybe... This Christmas, you can step in and be present like you've never been because in some way, God is using your presence in that home to show something about the beauty of Jesus Christ and be prayerful. I said, God, you, you know my family, you put me in there, right? Help me, help me. No one is excluded. Second one is this. Um, yeah I feel like I got to qualify this one but that's okay I'll qualify after I say it so God is not ashamed of you God is not ashamed of you and this is this is where I'm kind of going with this um I, I think most of us in this room would say yeah we, we we get the idea that God loves us that God wants to redeem us make us new we get the idea that he wants to save us and we're all for that like I'm not saying that's bad all right that's a good thing we're all we're all about that but I think there's a Part of us that if we're kind of being honest, we 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 want to be loved, we want to be accepted, but we also want to be liked. And I know it sounds really middle schoolish, right? I get that. That sounds, man. And I got a middle schooler, and I don't mean that like as a you know disregard to them. If you're a middle schooler in here, I love you. Uh, but but it just seems immature. Like we we would move beyond wanting to be liked, right? But there's there's something in all of us that we we not only want to be loved, we want to be liked. We, we want to be enjoyed. Like we want our presence to bring joy to someone. And we want our presence to where, well, I like being with you. And if if we kind of lay the cards on the table, like some of us in this room would say, man, there's stuff that I've done in my life that I'm really ashamed of. Like it's, Like it's even hard for you to to even bring that to even some of the closest friends you have or even your spouse. Like you're, you're so ashamed of this that to bring that out in the open, you feel like, man, they would reject me. They would kind of like put their stiff arm up. And if they didn't do that, they probably would no longer like me. And if that's how you feel with possibly with some of your friends, some of us in this room probably feel the same way with Jesus Christ. That, yeah, we get he loves me, that he accepts me, but man, he knows me in full. And there's probably a little bit in Jesus that goes, ah, that's kind of nasty. I love you, but I'm really ashamed of you because you did this. You thought this. And I love this story of Rahab because if you go home, And you look up all the occurrences of Rahab, there's the name Rahab, the number of times, I think it's like four times in the Bible, every one of them except one, she's referred to as the prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute. Do you know the one place where she's not referred to that? The genealogy of Jesus. I may be speculating a little bit here, but I think that's on purpose. I think that's intentional because in Jesus Christ, Rahab is not a prostitute. That's not her identity anymore. She's a a daughter of King Jesus. She's a sister of King Jesus. And Jesus is proud of her. Jesus is not ashamed of her. So much so, she's the second woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. And just in case you think I'm off my rocker, listen to what Hebrews 2 says. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy had the same father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed. He's saying that to you. If you're in Christ, you may feel shame and you may feel like he should be ashamed of you. He's not. He's not. He's not ashamed of you not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. I love what Martin Luther says about this passage as well as the genealogy of Matthew when he says this, Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, (laughs) he even puts them in his family tree. God is not ashamed of you. So let me ask you, like when when you go to bed and you lay down it's usually the, the place where most of us are the calmest and the steeliest, And it's usually the place where we start hearing things, not crazy stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like you do, you start talking to yourself and you hear stuff. And my question is this, what is, what, what's the story you're saying about you? What do you hear about you when you go to bed? Better yet, what do you believe God's posture is toward you? Is he just tolerating you? You feel like, ah, I got to love her because I'm God. I'm God. I've got to be loving, right? Is that what you think? That's not the case. If you're in Christ, he's proud of you. Jeremiah tells us that Zechariah does. He sings over you. That's beautiful to think about. He sings over you. When we were in Colorado a couple Summers ago, we went to this church. It was the craziest church I've ever been to in my entire life. Some of you guys have heard this story. This whole story in and of itself, but there's a little piece in there. This is how crazy it was. Literally, guys, we got up and danced there in the middle of the service. So you talk about being awkward. Like, dude, that was. They didn't have a lot of visitors at church. I think it was their first ones that they've had in years, and part of that's because you do a dance in the middle of the service. So we, we, we looked really weird. But then we tried to be serious, try not to laugh, man. But I was just going, what in the world? This is the craziest church I've ever been a part of in my life. But here's, and I'm pretty sure this is what, I think one of the, the things he was teaching on something about parenting, and he said something like this. He said, don't ever tell your kids that you're proud of them. Because if you tell them you're proud of them, then that produces pride in their life and pride is a sin against God. I walked out of there thinking, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my stinking life, right? I'm sure some of you guys think the same thing when you walk out of here and you hear something I say. It's like the <laughs> dumbest thing that I've ever heard law say. But I said it, man. I just said, that is the dumbest thing ever. It is absolutely just crazy for him to say that. Because I would argue that's what your kids need. They need a mom and dad who knows their kids fully, right? And looks at them, whether they did something great or did something horrible, right? This unconditional, I am proud of you. Look, I'm just telling you what, that heals a lot of wounds. And it brings a lot of change. You think about that on a level of your heavenly father, right? Knows you fully. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow, next week. He knows the sin you're going to commit. Like, he knows it. And in Christ, he looks at you. Man, I'm telling you, he looks at you and he's proud of you. He enjoys you. He is not ashamed. Let's pray.